0: This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London.
1: Hi, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and the lows of postgraduate study. This week we have a very special guest, Anne-Marie Corriat, who is the head of UK and Europe research landscape over at Welcome. And if you're not sure what any of those things are, don't worry because we will be grilling Anne-Marie in just a moment. Uh, later on, we'll be inviting Madeline and Julie to ask even more questions, and hopefully Anne-Marie will share a little bit about her journey from PhD to where she is now. I'm Elisa Brand, and hope you enjoy the episode. So, welcome, Anne-Marie. How are you?
0: fine thank you very much for joining us today
1: brilliant we met you recently at the vitai conference which is only proof that getting out there and networking is a great way to meet new people surprise surprise so thank you very much for coming all the way to kings today Um, so before we start to talk a little bit about what your job is um, i thought it would be good for listeners for anyone who kind of lives under a rock to know a bit more about what welcome is could you share with us about
0: that? No, absolutely. So, Welcome is a large foundation, a charitable foundation. Um, we exist uh, to improve health and improve health for everyone. We're in a very fortunate position where we have a billion pounds worth of funding raised on the endowment that we invest. It's a nice sum. It's a huge sum, um, <laughs> which allows us to do a whole variety of things. And as I said, our charitable mission is around improving health. Um, but, as a foundation that doesn't have a living donor and as a foundation that raises its own money through its investments, we've had a careful look at who we're accountable to. And as an organisation of that size, very important we get that right. So we've decided and through a lot of work, that we are actually accountable to society for delivering on welcome mission whilst using our independence for public benefit. And as a consequence, what we do is we have a fairly clear, we hope sort of um, vision as to where we're we're sort of using that influence. A lot of it is in funding research in processes that underpin life, it's around exploring societal and historical and ethical factors that affect people's experience of health, it's about inspiring and igniting uh, people's excitement with research itself, and then very importantly aspects of influence in relation to policy.
1: Part of that I imagine is also including funding PhDs or the next generation of researchers, is that correct?
0: That's correct. We yeah. have a fairly hefty programme which uh, is involved in looking at research careers and funding various aspects of those.
1: Brilliant. And your specific job, I understand, is you are Head of UK and Europe Research Landscape.
0: Quite a title.
1: Quite a title. It Sounds very beautiful. <laughs> Maybe perhaps you could um, paint a little picture for us about what, what you mean by research landscape.
0: Well, far from painting pictures, yeah. <laughs> which is what I always think I need to be uh, doing with a title like that. Um, what I'm what I'm charged with doing is looking at the environment in which research is conducted. So that's um, like
1: working environment, or is that broadly it's speaking? It's working
0: environment. It's funding environment. It's how we interface as funders with the institution. Mm-hmm. It's how we count and measure what success looks like. It's how we yeah, take an assessment that. of the way in which training is operating and whether or not actually we're driving for the right sorts of features.
1: That sounds like a very, very large mission that you're trying to achieve. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit more. Is there something unique about the doctoral training programme that a student might expect to experience?
0: So, welcome spends around £26 million a year on PhD training. So, that's not an enormous number when you look at the grand scheme of things mm. in the UK. It's about... Uh, 3% of the total population of biomedical students and it's around 10 to 12% of those types of funding that operate in a programmatic way. Mm. So some of you will have heard of centres for doctoral training or doctoral exactly, training programmes. Yeah. I think a well, lot the of institution, people go that. Yeah, that's yeah, correct, no, yeah. who yeah. have an allocation and they get a, a guaranteed amount of students that they can recruit to each year. Our funding operates in that sort of way So not
1: the old school where, um, so if somebody wanted to be funded by Welcome, they would probably have to join uh, a doctoral training centre first.
0: Completely. We've taken a very um, sort of strong position over the last 20, 25 years that what we think is the best way to do things is that the centre where the training operates is responsible for not only the scientific training but the student well-being and the direction that the student is in that journey.
1: That's really interesting because before I got the PhD that I'm on currently, I did it the kind of old-fashioned way where I found a supervisor and we tried to find money, which didn't really work, and I realised when I joined this doctoral training programme that I'm on that this the whole landscape of PhDs is changing to be oriented in the way that you welcome offers their doctoral training partnerships
0: it's certainly increased a lot over the last couple of decades and I think EPSRC has made the most enormous contribution Mm. to to doing that it's a noddle that sort of came from the states in the first instance and the important thing is not that it isn't important for you as a student to find a supervisor you wish to work with and to co-create that project that I think still re- remains fundamentally important. Yeah. What's really important though is that you've got that cohort support alongside that, that okay. you've got a number of students going through, and that as a group of students you're being supported to develop all those other skills that you inevitably develop as, you are, as you're training.
1: And I just wanted to come back to this point you made earlier. So you said that an important thing for Welcome was to give the, um, the kind of control over to the institutions, is that correct? Um, And I wondered if you could elaborate why that is so important.
0: It's incredibly important that the responsibility that the institution has is very clear. We could second guess a lot from a welcome perspective, but Mm -hmm. unless there's support networked within the institution, it's not necessarily going to be effective. And when we did our review of PhD training about 18 months ago, what we found were some, some key pinch points in the system whether that was around diversity on recruitment, supervisory Mm -hmm. training, transitions into the next stage of your career, Mm -hmm. where universities were doing some things, but actually the whole cultural environment was not necessarily as evidence-led as we would like. Any institution that bid into us had Mm -hmm. to commit to taking culture seriously. And Mm -hmm. within that context, they had to commit to training supervisors, to making sure that the supervisor-student relationships were working well. And one of the challenges in all of that has been to uh, try and unpick where the evidence is that that is actually happening. Mm. It's all very easy to write something down that says, yes, we do this, don't we? Isn't life wonderful? But actually generating the evidence base and building that sort Mm. of community of practice that, that... Sort of shares almost like the data that exists on what's happening and whether it's working well so I know is you, evolving.
1: So I know you have you you launched these new programs last yep, year, is that right? Did. So have you got any evidence? It's maybe early in the day. Have have you seen any any improvements or changes in the last? So year? it's
0: very early days. Very We early. literally <laughs> only just made the awards. We launched okay. the call last year. The awards were made um, in July. This so year. your first cohort of students are
1: starting yeah. now. They
0: will be. Re- they are being recruited at the moment. Okay. So they will start in October next.
1: Um, I wondered if I could also just explore more these kind of key aims that the um, Welcome have with their new programme Um, so diversity and
0: uh, on recruitment so how does that look actually? Um, So that's the fundamental question that the directors are asking themselves if you look at the sort of data that exists you know it is not unusual for people to have gone straight through GCSE and A level and get A stars in those and move to a master's and then mm. go to a PhD. Mm. That tells you when you look at the sort of makeup of the population that that isn't hugely diverse in many different ways. Definitely not. Ways.
1: Absolutely. We it's not even my story. Yeah. Not mine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you hear from um, institutions where you might have individuals who come back in to want to do a PhD. So I coming from a, from a different industry or field. Coming from a different industry or different field might have technical experience that actually, sometimes it's harder to um, convince the appointment panel that that is a, a good thing to be doing, and I think all that relates back down to the whole question of how we measure success of PhDs. So, if at the end of the day, we as funders are going to look at how many papers are published, or you know how many have gone on to do postdoc training, that's a very narrow set of measures. Absolutely. If we're looking at actually the, the starting point for diversity, could be disciplinary. But it could quite easily be sexual, it could easily be main um, characteristics also. Sure. That actually those are all really rather important. And if our ultimate metric is whether people have gone on to use the skills gained in PhD training in a career, irrespective of what type of career that is, mm-hmm. that starts to broaden out the pool by which you can then see. So we're really trying to tackle what the upstream determinants are of some of the narrowness that people are using to view success in PhD training.
1: That's interesting but I also read on one of your websites um, that uh, one key issue that the program is trying to tackle is this transition from undergraduate to PhD so is that because um, you are looking to recruit more undergraduates you know missing out the master's step and kind of getting younger people in to do PhDs sooner
0: So I think what we're trying to do here is to make sure that uh, there isn't a a preconceived idea of what a successful um, individual looks like. As you all know from doing PhDs yourselves, the motivation you have is what will carry you through. Absolutely. Um, And simply having a grade or a master's won't tell you necessarily whether you've got that. So it's quite a wide variety of things that's required in all of that. And what we find is that people are get quite comfortable thinking about what a good student looks like and when you unpick some of that the good is the proxy for the grade yeah of course it's really important that people have got the commitment to work hard but that can come in all sorts of different guises so one of the things we've done to sort of think about the undergraduate to postgraduate transition is we've restructured our biomedical vacation scholarship program and that deliberately we used to do the individual application we'd score them and we'd we'd second guess in in welcome We've said actually what we want to do now is work with widening participation offices at institutions. So you would work
1: with the university to kind of find potential candidates? That's correct. So what
0: we've done, I mean, we'll take a step back again, we've given a block of funding into those institutions that were successful in our programmes and said, here is the aim of what we're trying to do. We're trying to increase diversity, not necessarily from Russell Group, not necessarily from your usual uh, ports of call. Mm -hmm. Please use this money in a creative way. And we're at a really early stage because those were only awarded in the summer. Um, some it came to as quite a surprise and what's really interesting is that sometimes the winding Participation Office, of course because it's mostly undergraduate, doesn't necessarily link up awfully closely with some of the postgraduate cool. recruitment. So what we're also trying to do is, is disrupt a little bit of the conversation and try and encourage practice that's been learned from undergraduate through to the postgraduate and try and join that up mm. as well. So again, it's a little bit of an experiment. But interestingly what we're doing with both the PhD and the Vacation Scholarships is thinking about how do we understand the impact of the way we're working. So we're working with social scientists to do do some ethnographic research Mm -hmm. that will help us understand what impact or what difference our attempt to integrate culture as a set of criteria Mm -hmm. for assessment has made on the way the institutions have worked or in fact the programs and then subsequently how the students themselves have experienced experienced their training. Mm
1: It just, it just came back to my memory, actually, that in my undergraduate, I did a vocational scholarship that was sponsored by Welcome.
2: <laughs> I Delight. can't believe I forgot that.
1: <laughs> but just as you were describing it, I was like, hey, that sounds really familiar. And it's interesting because, I mean, I, I remember when I first started my undergraduate um I decided that this was something I really wanted to do and research was definitely something I wanted to explore and the vocational scholarship was definitely helpful in kind of encouraging me to pursue that. How early do you think that kind of culture around research needs to be cultivated? Day 1. Day 1. So what day 1 from undergrad? I mean, no, no or, day
0: 1. Yeah. Birth. Um, <laughs> just <to laughs> the be, long game. Yeah, the the very long game. I mean, I think if, if if you look at the data on you know, A star to C grades at GCSE, there's a massive proportion of the population that really doesn't touch science research. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need to stop and think why that is. And mm-hmm. certainly the education program at Wellcome is looking very hard at how we increase diversity in both formal but also informal science mm-hmm. learning. There's a lot of work that goes on to um, show that, you know, the traditional way we look at science learning, you know, through the museum or even the Wellcome Collection, Um, doesn't necessarily speak to the whole population. And so working with social scientists to better understand, you know, what equity looks like when you're looking at informal science learning is really important. So I I think whilst it's really important here, what we're looking at is, you know, the PhD, the transition from the undergraduate in, we've always got to have a mind to the fact that actually there are some much larger issues to, to work on.
1: So in your words, how should PhDs be kind of seen or judged by society or professors?
0: Really um, interesting question, and I think it gets to the nub of how we value um, the whole question of PhD training. In our own programmes, what we're doing is we're really trying to turn things on the head and say we are not going to count at the end of the day Um, you know the the success or or otherwise of a PhD training period as the delivery of a shiny publication. Mm -hmm. What's much more important to us is that actually the individual is going to be able to go on and utilise the skills gained in a career that suits them. Hence the personal development planning that works all the way through the programme. But very importantly we think it's um, incredibly important that the individual gets an opportunity to explore something different and many programmes do this. So the CDTs and the DTPs have got Opportunities to go into industry. We think there's a period at the end of the PhD where the individual, once they've submitted, should have the opportunity, as a postdoc sort of paid individual, to explore something that will help them decide where next for their career.
1: Well, that's interesting. So that so you offer some kind of funding to support that? Or? We
0: have provided in each of our programmes a transition fund. And that transition oh, fund nice. is tailored. Mm. Um, it's tailored within the context of the programme to meet the students' needs. So it could be a three, six-month, could be 12 months. Mm. It recognises the fact that writing up publication material post-submission is entirely normal, mm. and that could be part of the use if the individual was going to continue in research and that was the destination. It's very importantly not for the research director to fund bits of work they would like to have done in their lab it's very much for the individual, it's not for the not for the supervisor and so it could be a policy placement, it could be going to work um, in a newspaper, it could be going to do something that involves teaching in schools, it could be an art project, it could be anything that enables that individual to try something that allows them to consolidate their skills and move on more effectively to the next spot
1: That sounds very practical, actually, and uh, I really would welcome that. If I could just close this kind of part of the podcast on a a question, kind of a visionary, if we could go back to this idea of the landscape. Um, So what do you imagine PhDs to look like in 10 years' time?
0: What do I imagine, or what would I like them to be? Well, I mean, (laughs) I guess you could
1: be a little bit kind of idealistic in this situation because you are in the driver's seat in many ways. So what would you like it to look like?
0: Okay. so what I would like is the perception that a PhD is for research and research only to be turned on its head. Very much the conversation we've just had Mm -hmm. around the intrinsic value of understanding research and being able to do research in a sort of deep domain expertise way is hugely valued.
1: So you would really welcome more people doing PhDs because it's not just about research?
0: absolutely i think it's the research skills that you gain i think it's the really the perception though of society and the perception of academia Mm -hmm. itself that the way we judge successful training is not on publications alone and that's where i really think if we can make that transition then we end up moving towards what welcome is hoping for which is a kind of culture that supports rigorous research and high quality research that makes a difference
1: brilliant thank you very much pleasure so before we bring in our panel, um, I'm going to pass over to Julie. Say hi, Julie. Hello. Um, and Julie's going to tell us a little bit about what's happening at King's and maybe some other things that people might be interested to hear about.
2: Yeah. So hi, guys. I just wanted to alert you to a couple cool things that are happening. Uh, first off, there is an exhibit at the Science Gallery over on the guys' campus, and it is officially titled On Edge, Living in an Age of Anxiety. Ah! I know. Stressful just <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> But basically it's uh, drawing on a lot of the cool cutting-edge research that's going on in mental health from the IOPPN, which I'm sure Elisa is very proud of. They sort of delve into some of the different issues surrounding mental health and different personal experiences of anxiety and how the world around us can sort of contribute to that. And it should be a really interesting exhibit that you all should go and plan to check out. It started in September and it is running through the 19th of January 2020. Entry should be free so I would encourage you all to check that out. No
1: excuses guys it's free go get some culture.
2: The other thing I want to draw your attention to since we have our esteemed guest from Welcome Trust here today is an exhibit currently on at the Welcome Collection up on Houston right across from the train station. It's actually a really cool Museum. I've been there several times and I recommend you do the same. Right now, they've got an exhibit called Play Well, which basically explores how play transforms both childhood and society. And they've got displays of historic toys and games, artwork design, and all sorts of exhibits about how play basically develops social bonds and emotional resilience and lots of other interesting stuff like that so i'd recommend that you check that out
1: and that's play not just for kids but for adults but
2: for everyone and
1: phd students and definitely definitely for phd PhD students
2: that also has free admission and galleries are open tuesday to sunday at 10 a.m i think so check that out
1: thanks julie okay so i think now we will begin our panel and if i can just quickly introduce madeline say hi madeline hiya (laughs) take it away guys ask all the questions you like
2: Great, thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could start off and just tell us a little bit about your own journey. I think you were a PhD student once upon a time, and now you're in charge of this great sort of welcome research landscape. So I was wondering if we could hear about how that happened. A bit. No,
0: sure, absolutely. I was actually a PhD student twice upon a time, actually, <laughs> as, it, as it turns out. So I did my degree in chemistry um, and environmental sciences, and um, as one does when one's very young, got had had a relationship and went out to work in the U.S. post post degree and was um, keen to start a PhD and in fact I did and underestimated the complexity of visa situations as you do and ended up working actually rather than completing a PhD out there being a research technician and that was a research technician in a biomedical laboratory working on G-protein coupled receptors. Came back to the UK still quite keen on continuing research but got a job as a biochemist in in a hospital lab so very routine type work and came across uh, a welcome PhD studentship. So applied for that and was fortunate enough to get that. So I did a PhD in developmental biology in Manchester, working on alligators, working on sex determination in alligators like (laughs) you do. And what I knew from doing that was relatively quickly that because I'd had a bit of a variety of um, exposure to different types of research, that I wasn't keen on pursuing the lab only model and was looking for a job that would allow me to combine a whole range of things. So after a postdoc and some more thinking, I joined the Medical Research Council. And whilst working for a fair had a number of opportunities which saw me working internationally. It saw me working very closely with universities, and latterly with um, government and all the other research councils. So that really set me up. So 20 years' experience in that field, and in the last three years came into welcome. So... I think it was, I never really knew where my career was going, <laughs> but what I knew was that I, I really loved trying to make a much broader policy difference, and I was very keen on doing something that was going to enable me to join up all the different aspects of research whilst applying some of the sort of methodological approaches and being cognizant of the importance of data.
3: Were your and um, supervisors supportive of you leaving academia?
0: Um that's a really interesting question so I don't think my supervisor who is quite close to where we are now actually knew very much about um the types of careers that would have suited me best um his experience was very much in academia um I remember and apologies for this if he's listening the question was so would you like me to write you a good reference then (laughs) (laughs) when I applied. I mean, I think it was certainly the organisations I was applying to were ones that he knew of and was very respectful of, um, and so he thought it would be a, a, you know, a great route. But I think it mm-hmm. was um, an interesting time where success was very much still viewed as staying in academia. Yeah, publications. Publications, grant money, fellowships all those sorts of things absolutely Mm, so he wasn't unsupportive but wasn't the best advocate
2: so you seem to you and I assume welcome by extension seem to have a pretty broad understanding of what one could do with a PhD Um, if your sort of overriding goal of the mission is to improve health generally is there any sort of more structure that gets applied what if I take my PhD and go do something totally irrelevant that makes my life very happy but I've now wasted your money and I'm not contributing to the overall health. Is that Does that concern you guys or do you feel the need to put any more guidance on, onto what PhDs do after they finish?
0: So the PhDs that we have awarded are in science more generally, so we have a very wide remit. And I think the important thing is to uh, state that we were very deliberate about not putting any tie into the field of research or any tie into application. And that's because actually serendipity plays a huge part in research. And provided it was within the broad remit, then that's absolutely fine. The purpose of funding the PhD programmes was to use them as an opportunity to shift culture in the way training operated and provided it worked in the broad remit, absolutely fine. In terms of where you go on to next, actually, you know, the point is use the skills that you've got. Because I don't know if you remember me saying at the beginning, but Welcome has a role in inspiring and exciting individuals across Um, across the publics and across um, education more widely. So anything that you do with your skills that actually helps contribute much more widely to understanding about science and research is superb. Um, Within
3: institutions, there's obviously this quite dated uh, view of it's publish or perish, it's get grants or, or flounder. If PhDs should not be based on their necessarily academic merits in terms of papers, what do you envisage the sort of viva or examination process being like for, for, for PhDs? Like, should we have a section that uh, sort of says, this is all my extracurriculars as well? If I'm a really all-rounded person. How exactly do you envisage that?
0: I think it's a really interesting set of questions, and it's one that I hope our new PhD programmes will help us look at quite carefully. Because whilst, you know, we say, and you've commented that publications aren't always guaranteed, of course they're not, mm-hmm. getting experience of writing is a, is a great a great thing. The question, I think, for PhD vivas is around critical thinking and how you demonstrate the critical thinking skills, the robustness of your experimental design, the degree to which the data that you're producing are open and transparent, or the code that you've developed is open and transparent. All those sorts of things, I think, are really important.
3: So, like, the viva should stay as it is now, but you're sort of, like,
0: nominally supposed to have done lots of extracurriculars and... So I think, I mean, the, the Viva, as it is now, I think is is quite wide and varied in terms of the way it, it, it operates quite generally. And I think when you, um, you know, you, you sort of poke under the hood a little bit, it's clear that there are um, there are differences which exist. Um, it's quite a live topic in in sort of, you know, graduate education more generally. You know, what is the future of the 21st, PhD, 21st century PhD and how should it look? Should it be a Viva... Should it be, you know, thesis by publication? You know, exactly. Which I can see the face going, oh my goodness, that's not the right way, is it? No, it's it's not. And I think, you know, the point about a PhD is it's about critical thinking. Mm. It's about generating the in-depth knowledge about your field and the skills to do critical inquiry, data analysis, and the ability to write and communicate. So all of those things need to be examined in some way. The exact shape of those and what's most effective will take more than me to figure out. Um, and that's where I think it's really important that we work with those that are committed to trying to evolve that, and generate evidence that that's open for others others to look at. So, ten, fifteen years, will it look exactly the same? Probably not. Will there be features that you'll recognise? I'm
2: sure there will be.
1: I've
0: mm. obviously never done a viva before, so <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, this is probably kind of similar to what you were just saying. But in terms of requiring that the institutes that receive the funding sort of comply with the ethos that they've committed to in terms of diversity of recruitment or supervisor training or or general support of alternate career options. Is there any sort of... What's the feedback mechanism? Is there, is there a check on that? What's the enforcement of any sort? Or is it just, look, we're all hoping for the best here, we're all on the same team? Well, I think so, obviously, one does hope for the best, but you need a little bit more than that to tell you
0: whether you're moving the dial or not. And yeah. um, this is going to be one of the uh, top topics of discussion amongst the new programme. So, when we did the review, what we did was we asked them to tell us what their current evidence base was for their position, whether it was around supervisor training or effectiveness or diversity or you know careers. And what's clear is that people understand different levels of awareness about their own position and what the directors want to do is agree a, a consistent way that they will as a group of programs report back and measure certain aspects. So some of that will be qualitative and some of it will be student feedback. Some of it will be more quantitative and there'll be a mix of that. And I think that's where the community together needs to um, be very clear about how it, how it might evolve. I don't know if you've seen any of the discussions on research integrity, but there's a UUK concordat for research integrity. And what each institution has had to do is promise to put some statements up about how do they know whether or not the research they are conducting is being operated as they would like it to be. And are they reporting on, you know, near misses or fraudulent or, or whatever? And I can imagine a situation where institutions need to take the lead in some of these things and be much more transparent about the ways in which they are developing their own awareness about the things that we're asking them. But of course that needs to be worked on together. In a way in research, sort of money talks
3: and you get really good effects by saying we're going to give funding to you for, for this good reason. Where else in institutions, can you engender change, really? It feels like change is coming from higher up when it comes from funding, when it's linked to funding. Yeah, I
0: think that's right. And and the research culture campaign that we've, we've just launched is building on a whole suite of work by other funders, by other institutions. The Royal Society had a research culture initiative that lasted a couple of years, which completed last year. Mm-hmm. UKRI have made research culture one of the primary objectives for their uh, strategic prospectus coming up. So we are not the only ones, we're very conscious that we're not the only ones. We're holding the baton for a little while. There are others yeah. who are, who are there. And we're working hugely in partnership with all of them. And I think the point here is we work in a system. If all we ever do is stick a policy in place or stick a grant scheme in place, we're going to go no further up to changing people's values and beliefs or working on it collectively. Mm-hmm. So we have to work with the institutions, we have to work with researchers and we have to work with policy makers. So I think it's an all-rounded effort in all of that. And, you know, I would hate people to go away with the view that this was a welcome, uh, a welcome show only. Sorry. No, no, it's a very important point, because if if it's just us sort of saying mm. it's not going to make the difference, actually the point is that it's, it's for the community, by the community as well. And that, you know, you touched on the Concordat for Research and Career Development earlier. That's a very big shift to being, yeah. you know, for the community, by the community. And that's where, as funders, we've got to listen um, as well as do.
3: I was struck by that uh, conference, even in even VTI conference, the, the lack of students that was there. Like how, how do we manage to get students Completely. to know what they deserve from their supervisors and, and from their institution?
0: It's very um, telling in all sorts of different ways, isn't it, that we tend to end up in a situation where we talk to those we like to talk to and that understand our language. It takes quite a lot of effort to engage more widely. I mean, what was really interesting in the VTI conference too was that the UK research support um, side of things were there, the postdoc community, there were some voices there. But I think we really have to turn the tables quite a lot and make sure that we are integrating um, and not always wishing to lead. You ask about what students deserve. I would say that there are principles and obligations on all sides. Yes. Yeah. So um it is not just the student that deserves, the student clearly does, but the student also has some obligations, as do supervisors, as do institutions, as do funders. And that very much is the structure of the agreement that we've got across funders for PhD training and for and for postdoc support more widely. Yeah. But the balance of the voices may have been wrong in the past.
2: That's where we need to shift it.
0: Yeah, I agree.
2: Do you ever miss lab work? Do you feel like you made the right decision? I think lab work
0: probably doesn't miss me as much as I miss <laughs> lab work would probably be the thing. Um I I do still have quite strong links, friends, husband's still a researcher. Um I think I made the right decision. It does suit me. I do miss, and this is going to sort of of definitely show you my age, I do miss racking tips every now and then, (laughs) just to show that something moves in in a viable time frame.
2: We still do that. I've been known to rack some tips from time to time. (laughs) I've never
1: done that.
0: No, yeah.
2: It's quite pleasing.
3: We touched on the um, scientists' accountability to the public. I love that idea. How far could this go like could you get some members of the public can you like pick them off the street and sit them down in a welcome seminar room and say what do you think is important do you ever get the public to set your research priorities
0: so there's a really interesting study I would send you to or a really interesting survey that we did which is called the welcome global monitor Mm -hmm. and that was 140 countries 140,000 people responded to a survey on what research uh, meant to them and what about trust and what about the direction with two specific themes, I think there was definitely one on vaccines and I think the other one was on mental mm. health. There is a lot more about engaging effectively and if you look at um, you know, Ebola as a, as a case in point, actually if you do not understand the local con- cultural context in which you're working, mm. the effectiveness of what you're trying to do can miss completely so do I think there's scope for the voice to be much more integrated? Absolutely. Um, And the work of the Welcome Public Engagement uh, team is is absolutely trying to turn that on its head. It's if you're engaging, know why you're engaging and what the most effective way um, to try and do that is. And very often it's as much about listening Mm. as it is about doing. So it's not just the go and do a school's programme. It's very much, especially if you wish to turn the tables and really make a fundamental uh, leap forward then engagement is a fundamentally critical part.
3: All right. Thank you so much for coming to see us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, We've had a great time on the podcast.
0: And good luck with what's a really fantastic programme. Thank you very Uh, much. Thank you.
1: So that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you so much for joining us. A very special thanks to Anne-Marie for sharing about the Welcome Programme. And hopefully that gives a lot of food for thought for all of you prospective PhD students out there about what PhD might look like for you if you apply to one of these doctoral training programmes. I want to thank Madeline and Julie for their interesting questions. I've been Elisa. If you're interested to follow up on any of the points that Anne-Marie raised, uh, we've tried to include as many links as possible in the description below, so do check those out. In our upcoming podcast we want to talk about all things PhD so if you would like us to focus on a particular topic or just want to get in contact we always want to hear from you so give us a tweet at postocalypse18 or send us an email at postocalypsepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.